It's Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Barrett. You're with us on the Ideas Network. Advancements in artificial intelligence are changing the way we produce written material. Language model chatbots like GPT can pull from the full knowledge base of the internet and churn out coherent, advanced writing in just seconds. That raises ethical, ethical questions for all forms of formal writing, including in the classroom. ChatGTP can produce an original college-level book report in just a few clicks, making it hard for English teachers to tell what students actually wrote themselves. Our next guest says these technologies mean we need to rethink how we teach English class and engage students in real writing. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. How do you think we should handle AI and ChatGPT in classrooms? Are you concerned about the ways the younger generation will be learning to write? Do you think they need to learn to write? If you are or have been a teacher, how do you think English class could be changed for the better? Give us a call at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Daniel Herman is a high school teacher at Maybach High School in Berkeley, California, and a faculty associate at Bard College's Institute for Writing and Thinking. He's the author of the book Zen and the White Whale, a Buddhist rendering of Moby Dick. He wrote a column in The Atlantic late last year about AI in English class, and his follow-up piece this month is called High School English Needed a Makeover Before ChatGPT. Daniel, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. Daniel, you have had a front row seat to this change in how students can write. You've tested it out yourself by feeding prompts into it from your class. For those of us listening who aren't familiar with ChatGPT and what it can do, can you give us an idea of you know what it makes students capable of in an English class? Oh, geez, where do I even start? I mean, <laughs> maybe the, the first thing that I ever saw was on <clears throat> what we used to call Twitter, last, I guess, late November, the first thing I ever saw was somebody had asked it to rewrite the uh, to be or not to be soliloquy from Hamlet in the voice of Donald Trump. And just in an instant, it spit back this pretty hilarious, clever, clever thing. And when I started playing around with it, and I asked it to um, tell me a bedtime story for my kids that puts together um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Harry Potter or whatever it is. I mean, it really can can do can do anything. And we could talk about that for for hours. What for me really sort of made my uh, started giving me heart palpitations was when I started feeding it prompts that I would give my students for big formal uh, formal assignments and watched it just make short work of something that would take my my students um, ages. And that's when my own journey really started and, um, you know, ChatGPT for all that is terrifying and overwhelming about it, it's really been an opportunity over the, over the past nine months or so to look at what we're doing in English classes and why we're doing it to think about what we're talking about when we talk about quote unquote English class. And when you first started realizing what could be done with this and you know, book reports and essays being able to be spit out in just seconds, what sort of questions first came to mind? Was it terror? Was it opportunity? What did you feel? <laughs> oh, that's a little bit of both, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's funny that, again, it's really made me 
think about this tradition that we've been handed down of what is supposed to happen in an English class. That's it's funny because of course it's broken into pieces, composition over here, liberal arts, literature, but it's really a, a historical accident that we ended up with the tradition that we have today where it is just taken for granted that we should be writing essays about the great Gatsby, that students should be able to write something that is cohesive and consistent and advancing an argument that is doing this literary analysis about a, about a modern text. That's again, I mean, there, I could, could go into, go into detail, but it's a long story that goes hundreds of years back, 300 years in the, in the past, people wouldn't have thought that um, students should be able to write what we now think of as the dreaded five paragraph essay. And at the same time, it really has made me think about uh, writing in a completely different way. I've always just said, this is something that you're going to be able to have to do, that somebody's going to ask you to, to write uh, in this way moving forward. And if that's not the case anymore, if, uh, if a computer can do it for us in the same way that I don't need to know how to multiply three digit numbers in, in my mind because I have, have a calculator. Again, I'm not immediately saying that it's not worth doing, but it's worth asking the question, why is it worth doing? Especially, and this is such a, a key point for me, is to watch my students who are already stressed out and overwhelmed in all the ways that we were all so familiar with, have such a hard time with, in particular, formal writing assignments. And I can say more in a minute, we do pretty much all we do in my English class is writing in the classroom and sharing, sharing our writing. But then there's this pivot where they have to take all that writing and turn it into something polished. And that's super challenging for so many of my students. And I'll be, you know, no shade to my students who I all love and are all brilliant in any number of ways, but not all of them are going to be wonderful writers in the same way that I can carry a tune, but I'll never be a wonderful singer, no matter how hard I, I work at it. So are there ways that we can shift what we're expecting of students to maximize the benefits and minimize the, the detriments? We're talking with Daniel Herman right now, high school teacher from Maybeck High School in Berkeley, California, author of two recent columns in The Atlantic about how AI and ChatGPT could change English, English class in the future. And Daniel, what are some of those ways that you think we can reorient our thinking about writing in a positive way? How could we, you know, let ChatGPT not take over, but sort of change our thinking to a more useful way for students. Yeah, totally. So it's funny. I mean, really sort of uh, an epiphanic moment for me was realizing just how much writing my students do all the time. That when I was a teenager, I would be on the phone with my friends and I think that happens way uh, less frequently now. Students or you know, teenagers are texting each other or writing uh, captions for on Instagram or TikTok or, or whatever they're doing. They're actually writing a lot. And so when I uh, was hired at, at my current job 10 years ago, the, my, my boss, this guy, Bill Webb, introduced me to something called the, the writing-centered model in, in the classroom. And uh, this is the work that I'm now doing with uh, Bard College at the Institute for Writing and Thinking, or IWT. And instead of what many people will know as a discussion-based model or Socratic method, where a teacher asks a question into the room, and then students raise their hand and they say things that uh, the teacher can either say, oh, that's good, or, oh, okay, maybe we should think about this in another way. In this model, a teacher 
asks a question into the room. A rule of thumb is never ask a question you know the answer to. And then all students write a response and the teacher does it along with them. And I'll ask a few questions. We all do this writing and then we share some of what we wrote. And pretty much that's what we do for 80 minutes a day for, for a few weeks. And all my students are good at it. Hmm. They might not like it. It's, it's hard. It's, it's exhausting. But they don't write sort of uh, formal, quote unquote, writing or polished, quote unquote, writing. They write the way that they would talk. And they have phenomenal ideas and insights about, about the text. And I might ask them, what does this text remind you of? Or uh, what's a line that you're interested in or curious about? What's something weird that you found in this text? And then at the end of all that, they take all that writing and they are going to, yes, turn it into something more uh, um, cohesive that they're going to turn in for, for uh, to be assessed. And what I found is, so the guy who started this writing-based pedagogy is a guy named Peter Elbow, and he had this distinction between low-stakes writing and high-stakes writing. And when he talked about high-stakes writing, he meant because it was going to be graded. And I've been thinking about high-stakes writing in a different sense. High stakes because it's meaningful to them that they're going to be way less likely to go to ChatGPT if, when it comes to writing this thing that they're going to be graded on, they already have a ton of writing that they've done in the classroom. And a lot of it is about them. And it's something that they already feel connected to rather than in the discussion-based model where they go home with practically nothing unless they're taking notes during a discussion, which I think is pretty rare for students, and have to face this dreaded blank page with the blinking cursor asking them to write the introduction and then the body paragraphs, blah, blah, blah. So it's really opened up uh, a lot of ways to, to think about other forms of, of essay. And if it goes in unexpected directions, that's fine. If it um, has transitions that, that uh, don't quite fit together, really, um, what's the most important, or rather than me ensuring that students are conforming to this um, rigid model, really wanting to, um, to emphasize that they are learning and thinking and something that's frankly worth, worth doing and really going to increase their well-being. We're talking with writer and high school English teacher Daniel Herman about artificial intelligence and how ChatGPT could make us rethink how we teach English classes. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you used ChatGPT or something similar? Do you think there's room to incorporate it in an English class? If you're a teacher, current or former, we would love to hear from you. Have you seen this at play in your classroom? Are you scared? Are you hopeful? Let us know what you think. 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. Right now, we're picking up the talk with Daniel Herman. He's a writer and a high school teacher at Maybeck High School in Berkeley, California. We're talking with him about his recent pieces for The Atlantic, the latest of which is called High School English Needed a Makeover Before ChatGPT. And Daniel, before the break, uh, you were talking about the new approach that you're trying in your classroom. And I remember when I was in school, probably long before, the five-paragraph essay was the way to write. And it almost felt like you're just checking off the points on a rubric. It sounds like you're hoping that content and ideas come first and then you can polish it up later with ChatGPT or not. Is that a change we maybe should have been exploring before AI? 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if for no other reason that students hate it, I mean, they just it is so it is so deadening to them. And at the same time, it's funny because for years I, you know, I teach essays, really extraordinary essays by by Virginia Woolf and Annie Dillard and James Baldwin. And none of them is a five paragraph essay. They are creative and experimental and just and wonderful. And my students say, wait, how come you call this an essay? And then when we have to write an essay, it has to be introduction, thesis statement, body paragraph, body paragraph, body paragraph, or body paragraphs forever for 15 pages, 20 pages, body paragraphs. But then this conclusion that wraps everything up with a nice, nice, pretty bow. And there have always been different ways to, to think of, think of an essay. And even then I'll, I'll go further that, you know, I, I think that it's worth considering that maybe, maybe I'll back up and say, as a teacher, there's nothing better than being in a classroom, being engaged with 20 people or 40 people who are all thinking about the same thing with their minds and with their experiences and beliefs. And to bring all those things together is just, there's sparks. It's so exciting. And then everybody retreats to their individual screens and everybody is expected to write their own statement to basically, this is why I'm right about this idea about the Great Gatsby or, or whatever. And another opportunity that ChatGPT offers us is maybe we can think about that entire structure of, of the essay. Maybe we can do something more collaborative where so last, last semester, I tried different things out where I would ask students questions they would answer in a Google document and then those documents would be shared and each student would end up with a few of their classmates writing and their own on a document and they would be able to get rid of what they didn't like without that student seeing they would all make copies and respond to it, offer rebuttals, expand on it if they like those ideas, and then they would submit that for, uh, for a grade. So it's not just their own voice in its own individual silo, but they and, and people who they maybe disagree with have to, uh, have to coexist. And, you know, I, I, I want as a, a blanket caveat for anybody who's listening to this and screaming about um, all the um, expectations that are put on, on students with standardized tests and everything, I totally, I, I want to be completely uh, open about the fact that things are going to move way slow, way more slowly than, than they should. In the same way that AP exams for years have been graded based on how many fancy vocab words students, students have. And that doesn't show that they really um, have learned something about, uh, about the topic in the AP exam. It just learned that they know how to take an AP exam. So I understand that, um, the way that things should go and the way that they are going to go are not going to be the same the same thing, but um, these things are worth uh, considering as far as I know. And Daniel, you note in your pieces on this that not every high school is the same, not every classroom is the same with curriculum, class sizes. We just have about a minute left, but could you speak to the teachers out there who might be seeing this creep into their classrooms too, whatever the subject, and um, give them some thoughts about how to think about ChatGPT. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess just for... All of us have this opportunity to think about what's worth doing, and we all have to do things that we don't want to do, like like grade and and all you know parent teacher night or back to school night. But for me, for my students, there's nothing that I feel would be more beneficial to persuade them that books are worth their time. 
I've been thinking about that movie, uh, The Clockwork Orange, with the Ludovico technique, where they have to pin the guy's eyeballs open, so he has to look at this terrible image. That's what I want to do with great literature, so students are convinced that this is something that they should really um, have as part of their life, and there are ways that will encourage that, as far as I, um, as far as I'm concerned. And then what we've been doing for so long is, in my experience, not the way to to persuade them that. Well, we'll leave it there. Daniel, thank you for joining us and for sharing this with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Daniel Herman is a high school teacher at Maybeck High School in Berkeley, California, and faculty associate at Bard College's Institute for Writing and Thinking. He's the author of the book Zen and the White Whale, a Buddhist rendering of Moby Dick. He was with us today to discuss two columns he wrote for The Atlantic called The End of High School English and High School English Needed a Makeover Before ChatGPT. Soon, when Waukesha residents turn on their tap, they'll be drinking water from Lake Michigan. The water withdrawal is the first approved by eight Great Lakes states under a landmark deal that largely bans diversions outside the basin. As Danielle Kading reports, it took more than a decade to make it happen. It's late August, and construction is ramping up at the site where Lake Michigan water is being piped in from Milwaukee. So we're going to head over to the pump station now. That's Dan Dukniak. He's general manager of the Waukesha Water Utility. A pump winds in the background as he leads the way to two pipes. One is light blue and carries water from Milwaukee. The other is dark blue and sends water to Waukesha's system. Dukniak says the whole transition will take several weeks before around 72,000 people have Great Lakes water as part of the $286 million project. But I'll just be happy for the residents of the city of Waukesha because they've been waiting for a long time for a sustainable, safe water source. In some western states, access to fresh water from sources like the Colorado River has become a fierce competition. And in some parts of the world, large lakes have nearly dried up over decades due to climate change and water diversions. Those trends have made the Great Lakes an invaluable resource. And in the 2000s, the eight states and two Canadian provinces bordering the lakes created the Great Lakes Compact to protect them. Under the deal, Waukesha is the first city to receive approval from all eight Great Lakes states to withdraw water. The landmark agreement bans water diversions outside the Great Lakes Basin with limited exceptions. Waukesha fits that bill because it lies in a county that straddles the basin line. Democrat and former Wisconsin Governor Jim Doyle says Waukesha's plans were controversial while the compact was being written. But we really had to give everybody the assurance that there would be a process, both the sides that wanted the withdrawal and the sides that didn't, by which you could be assured that the water would be returned and it would be treated. Doyle chaired the Council of Great Lakes Governors when the deal was signed in 2008. Waukesha first applied for Great Lakes water two years later. But one of the city's early requests to withdraw up to 10.1 million gallons of water per day was opposed by environmental groups. Molly Flanagan is with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. It was much more than they were using at the time. Flanagan says they also questioned whether Waukesha had explored other alternatives. Groups also had concerns about the size of Waukesha's larger service area. And they worried about effects on the Root River, where water will be treated and returned to Lake Michigan. Peter Annan says changes ultimately limited the area served and the maximum withdrawal to 8.2 million gallons per day. 
Annan authored the book The Great Lakes Water Wars. He says any governor could have vetoed the diversion under the compact, and at least one considered it. In the end, a council representing the eight Great Lakes states unanimously approved it in 2016. Whether you like the Waukesha decision or not, you can't deny that it's extremely historic for the Great Lakes region and especially historic for the Great Lakes Compact. A group of Great Lakes mayors feared its approval would open the barn door for more withdrawals, but both opponents and supporters agree it's a relatively minor diversion for the Great Lakes. At a recent ribbon-cutting ceremony, Waukesha Mayor Sean Riley and Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson toasted the completion of the years-long effort with a glass of Milwaukee water. To the healthy, clean uh, water for Waukesha for generations and to Milwaukee Waterworks, which we'll be drinking. Cheers. Cheers. As Waukesha celebrates, Annan says the strength of the compact means it's unlikely water-starved western states will seek Great Lakes water. But he says he wouldn't be surprised if the next request came from water-stressed areas of southeastern Wisconsin. Dan Dukniak with Waukesha's Water Utility says he doesn't think the city's diversion will be the last. I will say this, you know, I think the precedent that we've set with returning 100% of the water and committing to that is a precedent that can't be undone. He says the diversion sets a high bar for any future diversions in the Great Lakes. Danielle Kading, Wisconsin Public Radio. You can read more about that story and follow all the latest reporting from our news team at WPR.org. While you're there, you can check out the Wisconsin Today podcast, stream both our broadcast networks, and if there's a conversation you missed or want to share, you can find it in our archives. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. There's more to come. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. Listening to Central Time, I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss announced on Tuesday he's backing a bill that would give the responsibility of redrawing political maps to the nonpartisan Legislative Reference Bureau. Wisconsin Democrats put forth similar plans in 2019 and 2021. At the time, legislative Republicans rejected the idea, arguing that the power of redistricting should stay in the hands of elected officials. The announcement from Voss comes as a new legal challenge to the state's current maps could be decided by the state Supreme Court's newly liberal majority. Voss has floated the idea of impeaching Justice Janet Protasiewicz if she doesn't recuse herself from cases on that issue. The new plan would require support from Governor Evers, who's been critical of it so far. There's a lot going on. We're talking about how nonpartisan redistricting could work and what it might mean for the balance of power in the Capitol. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. What do you think of the idea of a nonpartisan group drawing new electoral maps? 
Do you want your state representatives and senators to support this idea? What do you make of the timing of all this, and what questions do you have? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at wpr.org. John Johnson is a research fellow in the Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education at Marquette University's Law School. John, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me. Well, this um, people may have been seeing headlines about nonpartisan redistricting, Iowa-style redistricting. There's a lot of potential outcomes in this bill if it goes through. Could you give us the simple version of how this would work in the plan put forth by Republicans? Uh, yeah, so the simple version still isn't Yeah, the simple. smooth version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so what this bill would calls for is having the Legislative Reference Bureau, the LRB, create nonpartisan maps for the state which they would do by following the existing goals for redistricting in Wisconsin. Districts need to be contiguous. They should be compact in some way. um, And they should keep together municipalities when possible. So the LRB would try to do those things. They would make maps and the legislature would have to vote up or down and the governor would have to sign or veto uh, that legislation. They couldn't amend it at that time. Uh, If they voted it down or the governor vetoed it, it would go back to the LRB who would try again. um, And then there would be a second vote. And if they voted it down a second time, the LRB would try a third time. But on that third go around, the legislature would have the power to pass whatever maps they wanted. They wouldn't actually need to vote on the LRB proposal. They could just substitute their own maps and the governor could accept or veto those however they wanted. So really this plan, it doesn't require that there would be nonpartisan maps. It just means that the government, the legislature and the governor would have to explicitly reject or accept some proposed nonpartisan maps. Um, so it doesn't actually change the situation too much from what we have now in a situation where you have unified government like in 2011, uh, the party that controlled the legislature and the governor's mansion would still be able to pass whatever they wanted. And in a situation like what you have now, where um, there's divided power, you could still just as easily have a situation where um, the governor and the legislature are unable to come to agreement on maps. And this law doesn't address that situation. It doesn't say what happens next. Whereas in Iowa, the law is clear that if the legislature and the governor are unable to pass these L- these LSB, as the agency is named in Iowa, maps, um, it goes to the Iowa Supreme Court. Uh, the bill proposed in Wisconsin does not address that situation, and it leaves this kind of murky status quo that we're in right now. And the status that we're in right now is our current maps are being challenged, and that case could go to the state Supreme Court. So theoretically, if we pass this plan and we get into one of those three votes in your out type situations, could it go back into the courts? Yes, that's exactly right. Hmm. Could be federal courts, could be state courts. It's unclear. And this is a pretty significant change in position from state Republicans who for years have opposed the idea of nonpartisan redistricting. As I mentioned before, Democrats have put forth plans uh, very recently um, that would bring a similar type of system to Wisconsin. How different is this bill from Republicans compared to what Democrats had been proposing? Yeah, so there's a huge difference between this bill and the 2021 bill that Democrats put forward. It had a little bit of bipartisan support, but it was essentially a Democratic bill in 2021. 
Um, in that bill, it said on the third go around, the legislature could override the LRB proposed maps with a 75% supermajority. This Republican bill only requires a simple majority of 50 votes. So uh, the difference is the Democratic map said, well, you either have these nonpartisan maps drawn by the LRB or you have bipartisan maps agreed to by a supermajority that has to contain members of both parties. Whereas this current plan put forward by the Republicans says, after you reject the nonpartisan maps, the legislature is free to pass whatever maps they want along a simple party line vote. We're talking with John Johnson right now, research fellow in the Center for Public Policy and Civic Education at Marquette University, looking at the latest uh, twist in Wisconsin's redistricting story, a Republican bill that would create a process for nonpartisan redistricting in the state. We're taking your calls and questions, too, at 800-642-1234. John, the sponsors of this bill have compared it to Iowa, a place where um, Speaker Robin Voss said this has been implemented flawlessly. What have we seen in Iowa? What's gone well? What's been a challenge to this type of process? So, yeah, they do have this in Iowa. They've had it for quite a long time. I believe it was the first independent redistricting kind of system in the country, um, if memory serves me right. I believe it started around 1980 in Iowa. So they've been doing it for some time. Uh, and in situations where the uh the government was divided, you know, one party held the governor's mansion, another the legislature, the legislators, legislature's chambers were divided. I think often the um, nonpartisan maps could be a, a something that the two parties could agree on. In this past cycle, they had um, unified party control, Republican control of the state government, and they rejected the first version that their legislative services bureau drew. And on the second go go around, those maps were uh, more favorable to Republicans and they did pass them. Um, The 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 another advantage that the Iowa law has compared to the one that was put forward here in Wisconsin is that it it clarifies what happens if there isn't agreement um, between the governor and the legislature. Uh, It it goes immediately to the Iowa Supreme Court, who then has a statutory deadline by which they will draw maps and. Um, Oh, sorry, John. My my understanding, too, is that the, the Iowa um, system has some standards in place for how districts can be drawn regarding county lines and basically keeping them more square and not so cracked and packed, as they say. Are there going to be similar uh, standards in place in this bill for what the Legislative Reference Bureau could do with boundaries? Yeah, the standards are, from my perspective, pretty good in the in, in for what the LRB should consider. Um, they can't think about where incumbents live. They can't think about what the the patterns of the vote are. Um, they're only allowed to consider demographics uh, to the extent required by civil rights legislation. Um, so really, it is a set of neutral criteria uh, for drawing compact districts. This bill even defines compactness using a, a reasonable mathematical standard for that. Uh, so those are all things that this Wisconsin bill accomplishes. It's just that it doesn't actually require that one of those nonpartisan maps be chosen. Let's go to our calls now. We have Jeff with us in Superior. Jeff, what's on your mind? Hi, good afternoon. Uh, good topic. Uh, this is something we do need to discuss across the state. And so in my opinion, and I grew up here in northern Wisconsin, we used to hear 
how um, power was concentrated in Madison and Milwaukee, and they got whatever they wanted. But when we did the recent redistricting, we actually got results up here in northern Wisconsin. And you can you can say whether or not that's because of Republican leadership. But as a citizen, we actually got more uh, revenue sharing. We got more for schools. We got funding for our state parks. It's been a positive for the people of Wisconsin up here when they drew those redistricting maps most recently. I hope we don't go back to the old way of thinking that says you know, Madison doesn't care about us up here in northern Wisconsin. Jeff, thanks for the call. Uh, John, Jeff is seeing a benefit for his area in northern Wisconsin with the new and current maps. Um, You've done a lot of data crunching on what maps mean for the power that different parties have. What have you seen for um, kind of those northern Wisconsin areas that Jeff lives in for for representation in the capital? Yeah, some some seats did change hands uh, between the parties in in um, northwestern Wisconsin. So perhaps that's what he's referring to. Some of the boundaries were drawn um, in a way that shifted some historically Democratic leaning seats closer to the Republican Party and some Democratic incumbents uh, didn't run for reelection there. And there were some some changes. Yeah. And. um John, we uh, the timing of this is is interesting because just a week ago, this week, Speaker Voss was floating the idea of impeaching Justice Janet Protasiewicz because of her former comments on the maps being rigged, saying that that should cause her to recuse herself from cases involving the maps. Um, what do you make of the timing on this and how it would or wouldn't involve the state Supreme Court with a newly liberal majority? I'm not sure what to make of it. You know, obviously, it's quite an about face for the Republican leadership in the state legislature. They've been pretty explicitly on the record opposed to this kind of legislation in the past. Um, but yet the thing I keep coming back to is the way this this legislation still gives the legislature a lot of latitude to do what it wants. You know, they, it does require them to at least twice consider something proposed by the nonpartisan LRB redistrictors, but it does not require that they actually choose one of those laws or one of those maps, I mean. And that's in contrast to other states that have independent redistricting commissions that actually ultimately choose the maps. John Johnson is our guest, research fellow in the Lubar Center at Marquette University Law School. We're talking about Wisconsin's redistricting process and whether maps might be ruled on by the state Supreme Court, a non-districting or non-partisan commission under a new Republican bill. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. How would you feel about a non-partisan agency drawing Wisconsin's electoral maps? Do you think this should stay in the hands of lawmakers instead? What questions do you have about this bill and what a different style of map drawing would mean? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation in just a minute here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter in today for Rob Ferret. Right now we're picking up our talk with Marquette University Lubar Center Research Fellow John Johnson about the latest in Wisconsin's redistricting story. A new Republican bill would put the process in the hands of a nonpartisan group subject to legislative approval. We're taking your calls, your questions, comments at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. 
Now, John, going back in time a couple of years, there were, I think, up to seven maps being considered um, as we were going through the redistricting process. Originally, one from Governor Evers' office was chosen, then kicked back by the U.S. Supreme Court, and then GOP-backed maps were chosen. I know we right. don't have um, new maps in front of us. This bill has not even passed yet. However, what are you thinking about as someone who studied this so much? Like, what would, um, what could a nonpartisan map mean for the balance of power in the Capitol? So, if you took these standards that are already in Wisconsin law and drew, let's take the assembly for example. You know, the ninety-nine districts, uh, following the rules about making sure they're contiguous. Obviously, they got to have equal population. Um, trying to keep them compact, avoiding crossing municipal boundaries where possible, avoiding crossing county boundaries where possible. You could take all of those standards that have been established for a long time, and you would still end up with a map that benefited Republicans during a 50-50 election year. So if the vote was evenly split across the state just because of where Democrats and Republicans live, you would end up with this set of really heavily Democratic seats in Madison and Milwaukee that don't really have um, an analogous group of really Republican seats elsewhere in the state. Um, and so in that 50-50 election year, like we so often see here, I would still expect Republicans to win, you know, maybe 55, 56, 57, 58 uh, seats in, in the assembly on, in this neutrally drawn way. And that's not even thinking about incumbency advantage, which they would have more of since they have more incumbents. Um, so yeah, this this uh, this would not probably change which party controls the legislature, but it would create, I think, more competitive seats um, and just more legislators who are aware that they might actually lose their next election, which is something we have very little of right now. Let's go back to our phones. We have Joe in Lacrosse with us. Hi, Joe. Hi. I was wondering what things should be considered when drawing these districts. Uh, you mentioned uh, not uh, wasting any of a town's uh, votes by spreading them out too much, concentrating the votes in a, in a town. And you mentioned the government, federal government um, requiring certain races, I assume, be, uh, being uh, considered. What other things should be considered to make it a fair way to, to uh, distribute votes? Joe, thank you for the call. Uh, John, what do you think? This is such a great question, and people don't agree. So, you know, there's one school of thought that says fair maps are maps that you draw to try to keep communities of interest intact so that, you know, your town should be drawn into one district because as a town you have uh, similar needs, similar, you know, kind of uh, interest in being represented at the state level. Um, and so that's one idea is that you should just draw it not thinking about party at all, just about where these communities of interest is the term you often see are. Um, and that's what Wisconsin law talks about doing right now, though it doesn't define a lot of the terms. It just says things like should be compact um, without saying exactly what that means. Um, and other people say, no, a map should be drawn to maximize as many competitive seats as possible. They say democracy works better when there are more seats that a Democrat or a Republican could both realistically win 
so that the representatives have to be more responsible to the voters is the thinking there. That's not what Wisconsin law says now. It doesn't say anything about maximizing competitiveness. But to some people, a fair map is a competitive map. And to other people, a fair map is a map that's drawn without thinking about Democrats or Republicans at all. And uh, I think it's important for people to realize that in a state like Wisconsin, where Republicans and Democrats are not distributed the same way around the state, um, those two things are not the same. A neutrally drawn map is not the same thing as a competitive map. And, not necessarily. And Wisconsin is also a slightly more diverse state than Iowa. Does that come into play here? Probably, though, I haven't spent enough time looking at the sort of distribution of voters in Iowa to, to be able to speak to that. Sure. Oh, we have another call. Uh, Tom is with us in Coloma. Hey, Tom. Hi, can you hear me? We can, loud and clear. Uh, I may be losing coverage, so I'll be brief. Uh, I would prefer to see independently drawn maps, but I think that if the legislature has a chance to vote twice to override those maps, it would be meaningless because the party in power could simply have two votes, and that would be the end of it. Uh, And those are my comments. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, John, what do you think of Tom's idea of the legislature not having as much of a chance to reject those maps? You know, there's two, there's many examples of states that do it differently than this proposed bill. Missouri has an interesting uh, process I was just reading about recently. So in Missouri, they come up with a different commission to draw the assembly maps and and another commission to draw the state Senate maps. Um, And those commissions are composed of an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. And 70% of them have to agree on a map. So like you have to have agreement of both Democrats and Republicans on that commission as to what um, the map is going to be. So that's not a nonpartisan uh, commission. It's a very distinctly partisan one. People have a party affiliation to get on that commission, but then they have to agree in a bipartisan fashion to what the maps will be. If they fail to agree uh, by a specified date, then the state Supreme Court of Missouri appoints a commission of appellate judges to just draw maps. Um, And so that's how they do it there. The legislature actually isn't involved at the state legislative level. They do something similar in Michigan. They actually have this kind of funny, almost lottery process for coming up with um, citizens to be on the map drawing commission Four Democrats, four Republicans, five independents. And those uh, members have to choose a plan by majority vote that includes at least two people from each of those pools. So at least two of the Democrats, two of the Republicans and two of the independents. So, you know, other states have models that don't involve the legislature that actually have, you know, um, citizens or people who aren't elected uh, to the state government choosing these maps in an uh, enforced bipartisan way. So, you know, that that's an alternative to, to this uh, proposed bill. As we've been talking about, this current bill would put the map drawing in the hands of the Legislative Reference Bureau. Could you uh, remind us who that group is and what they currently do? They are a group of civil servants who, an agency that uh, I believe mostly reports to the legislature and provides technical assistance and analysis of what bills would mean. So they work in a, in a sort of a strictly nonpartisan way, providing useful analysis. I really rely on their descriptions of bills that are proposed to help me understand exactly what's happening there. Sometimes the, you know, the legalese can be a little difficult to decipher, but that's their job. To be honest with you, I, I, uh, I really, if this, if this bill becomes law, 
I don't, I don't think you could pay me enough to have that job at the LRV drawing these maps. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like a real pain. Well, John, um, there... can I say one other thing just on a technical note sure that thing. this bill does that uh, is really good is it requires that the LRB uh, assemble their nonpartisan maps out of the ward boundaries that are drawn by local elections administrators, um, which is something that really makes life easier for these people on the ground in every city, town or village in Wisconsin who are having to like actually sit down with a map and draw where the ward boundaries are going to be that decide where people are going to vote. Um, the way we do it now is sometimes the ultimate maps disregard those initial ward boundaries that are drawn by local administrators. And so the poor local administrators have to go back and redraw their wards after this is all said and done, which is just a lot of a lot of unnecessary work for them. They already, you know, those local administrators have a better sense of where the natural contours of neighborhoods are than anybody else. And so um, my view is that we should use those as the building blocks that larger districts are assembled out of. Well, we'll leave it there for today, John, but a lot more coming on this story. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. John Johnson is a research fellow in the Lubar Center at Marquette University Law School. He talked with us about the latest twist and turn in Wisconsin's redistricting story. You can check out how that became such a hot political issue by listening to the WPR Reports podcast, Mapped Out, and follow the WPR News Department for ongoing coverage. Think about the oldest shoes you have and the last time you wore them. Maybe they're slippers from when you were a baby. Maybe those Chuck Taylors you wore in gym class. Those might be old, but researchers in South Africa recently found the most ancient evidence of footwear ever discovered from more than 70,000 years ago. Specifically, they were looking at fossilized footprints of early human ancestors, which usually have separated toe marks. But a few sets of tracks didn't. They also had what might be marks from shoe straps. After recreating some ancient footwear and clomping around, this team is calling their findings suggestive and not the final word. Still, it could change our ideas of what early humans wore and when. And if you're looking to set that shoe record, you're going to have to put those chucks back in their box and wait a few thousand years. Stick around. There's more to come here on Central Time. <laughs> 